Well, turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 27 there. And we're going to make it through the ninth verse of chapter 12. Today we are going to begin the second major division of the book of Genesis. We've been looking at the Toledoth sections. We're going to discuss that again in just a minute here. That divide the book up into small sections Naturally, not counting the chapters and the verses, which were added, of course, much later. But in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you have what's called primeval history. This is creation, the flood, the Tower of Babel, all those stories. And then, more or less, chapter 12, although you need to know the end of chapter 11 for it to count, you begin what's called patriarchal history. And this is the story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, going down to Joseph, and we're going to start that section tonight. This is where a book that up till now has had a global perspective, we've been talking about everything that is happening to every person in the world, is now going to focus on one man and his family. And that focus is going to remain on that family really until the book of Acts, when it begins to spread outward again. And this, of course, is the story of Abraham, or Abram, as he is known before his name is changed. And his story, if you're taking notes, is going to cover chapters 12 through 25. We're going to talk about Abraham for a long time, and that's an appropriate thing to do. He is the, the father of the faith. He's one of the most highly regarded figures in the Bible, and for good reason. He is one of the greatest examples for us to look to in Scripture. But this is the beginning of his story. And the life of Abram had a rather, you might say, inauspicious beginning. It didn't start out too well. Because we find him at first, he's living under his father's roof in a city called Haran. And he's doing so in disobedience to what God had told him to do. And his story will begin tonight, and he's going to correct course and get it going again. But what I want to discuss by means of application tonight as we look at Abraham's story. It is an all-too-common thing for Christians to only do part of what God has commanded, only do part of what He's commanded, and then evaluate the blessings and the promises and the Word of God based on our partial obedience or even our disobedience. Let me give you a very clear example of this. Prayer is the clearest example of this. Jesus has given us some amazing promises about prayer. And I've said this before. What Jesus says about prayer is enough to make us nervous. Like, Jesus, that, that's sort of over the line, don't you think? But here's the deal. He says, if you ask, you will receive. That's the basic one, right? So then we don't pray. Or we pray once in a while. Or we pray feebly. You know, little prayers that are just kind of thrown up as you're on your way out the door and your attention wanders and you're not disciplining yourself to pray. You permit sin in your life that quenches your prayers. The Bible says that can happen. Then we, we look around and we see that our prayers, the things that we could say we would pray for, have not happened. So then we draw the conclusion God doesn't answer prayer. T.H. White, who was not a theologian, he was a novelist, but he had an amazing line in one of his books where he compared something that I don't even remember to, he said, people who never pray insist that prayer doesn't work, and people who do pray are adamant that it does. 
We say, well, God doesn't answer my prayers. But if we were to really look at your life, are you actually praying? Or are you just admitting that it would be a good idea were I to pray? And we're going to apply that principle across the board. Because God's attitude is like Isaiah 65. Isaiah 63 and 64 is this big lament that Isaiah writes of, Lord, why don't you come in and save us like you did at the Red Sea and do all these incredible miracles? And God answers him in chapter 65 and says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. The Lord is saying, I'm ready. Where are you? I want to save you. I want to bless you. I want to fulfill my promises to you. But he says, you're not here. I'm I'm ready. I'm stretching out my hands, but you're rebellious. You're walking in your own devices. We, as people, must never adjust our theology to fit our experience. It's got to be the other way around. Your experience ought to line up with your theology. Now, we do this for emotional reasons. Maybe just the the thought of accepting that I'm part of the problem is just too hard. Maybe there's carnal reasons or something you don't want to let go of. And so you have to come up with an explanation that will permit you to keep doing that. Maybe it's just ignorance. Let's be fair. Sometimes we just don't know. But it's not acceptable. Because the hard, simple truth is that oftentimes, and I will say oftentimes, not all the time. I'm going to correct that several times as we go through. Not every situation, but many situations. The reason that we do not see the fulfillment of God's promises in our lives is because we have not done what God has commanded us to do. God says, do this and I'll do this. You don't do that and you wonder why he ain't done that. Lord's like, that wasn't the deal. Abraham was living in Haran. He had no land, he had no children, and he wasn't especially blessed. But he had not done all that God had told him to do. So that was only to be expected. When he finally came around and did it, the Lord began to fulfill those promises. And we in Christ have been called to die to ourselves. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, hang on a cross until there is nothing left of your old life. And if we're going to insist on living by the same standards that the world does, then we shouldn't expect anything better. I hope to demonstrate from the scripture that these things are true, that failure to obey God will never lead to the abundant life he's promised. That there are situations where God may have a different plan, but it is way more common to see us not doing what we're supposed to do and then wondering why God isn't blessing it. But I also hope that we can see that when we finally get it together and say, all right, Lord, no more of this. When you get out of Haran and you head to the promised land, that's when his promises start to abound to us. So this may be a tough lesson to hear, but I hope it's also an encouraging one. Because the Lord is not out to break our hearts and to break our lives down. The Lord wants to give us abundant life. But the Lord has also shown us what to do on that path. We've got to make sure we've got both of those things going. So let's read the first five verses today. And this is the last five verses of chapter 11 in the book of Genesis. Now these are the generations, circle it, these are the generations of Terach. 
how you would say that, Terach, but we'll just call him Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah and the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So this is the beginning of our sixth Toledoth section. I've mentioned this several times. This is the traditional good old-fashioned way of outlining and dividing up the book of Genesis. The first Toledoth, we saw these are the generations, that's what that word means, of the heavens and the earth. Then we had these are the generations of Adam, then of Noah, then of Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then we had the generations of Shem, and now we have the generations of Terah, the father of Abraham. Now, Terah had three sons, we see here. Haran, or Haran, because it had that CH there, was the father of Lot. You know him. We're going to see him again. And he had two daughters named Iscah and Milcah. And it says that he died in Ur of the Chaldeans. This is where the family was from, the land of the Chaldeans, which is near Babylon, we believe. And it says that Nahor, Terah's other son, married Milcah. That is, he married his niece. We're just going to move on because there's not a whole lot of application to draw from that. <laughs> but of course, the one that grabs our attention here is Abram. His name would have been pronounced Avram. Av or Ab means father. It's where we get the word Abba, you know, Abba, father. And Ram or Ram means raised up. It means chief. To be the Ram of something is to be the head of something. So Avram traditionally has been put exalted father. It's a good name, except he had no children. And he marries this woman that I always grew up hearing her name pronounced Sarai, but probably would have been pronounced Sarai, and that makes a lot more sense to my ears anyway. And her name means princess. We also know from chapter 20, verse 12, that Sarai was Abram's half-sister. We will come back to that. Uh, but today we're just going to leave that one alone too. And she was unable to have children. And it says the family was from Ur of the Chaldeans. This is in southern Mesopotamia. We have a map here if you guys want to take a look at that. So this is near Babel, the Chaldeans. If you're familiar with the book of Daniel, the Chaldeans were uh, a very strong tribe in the Babylonian Empire. So that's where they're from. And it says that they left for Canaan. But along the way, they settled in a place called Haran, which was named after their brother or son, as the case may be, named Haran. This is 400 miles north of Canaan. So they go north to Haran, and then they were going to turn south and go to Canaan because to just go straight across would have been to cross the desert. So you can see in this map that the rivers that crisscross the route they took, that would have enabled it to be an easier trip. They would have had water the whole way. And when they get to Haran, it says that they stopped. They set out for Canaan, and they stopped in Haran. 
And we know about this family from Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. It tells us that Abram and his family served other gods across the river. So this is not a particularly religious family, at least not in the true religion of serving the one true God. Based on the etymologies of their names, which I'm not going to get into, but names like Milka and Iska and even Terra, they're related to the moon and the worship of the moon. And both of the cities, Ur of the Chaldeans and Haran, were both known as places where they worshiped the moon goddess. So that is likely what Abram and his family were worshiping. And then we read at the end here of the death of Terah at 205 years old, which is old for us, but you'll remember we're coming down from like 950 years and higher. And it says in chapter 12, verse 4, when we get there, that Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran after his father's death. Now, some folks have gotten tripped up here because it says back at the in verse 26 that when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And they say, well, wait a minute. If Terah died at 205 years old and Abram left when his father died, that means that Terah would have been 130 when Abram was born. So I thought I said he started having those children when he was 70. Well, this really isn't that complicated. Just says when he lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Does not mean he had them all at once. Just means that when the firstborn was born, he was 70. And well, Abram's first in the list. That doesn't mean he was firstborn. It just means he's first in the list. So when you come back to that, what does it say though kind of thing. There's really not a problem here. There are... Uh, some traditions that have adjusted this to say that Terah died when he was 145, but I would rather deal with the difficulty of the text as written than try and speculate to what it might have said. So this is the story we have so far. But if you remember, if you've been here for a little while, in order to get a fuller picture of what's going on here, you have to look at what Stephen says back in Acts chapter 7. Because he's going to make definite a possibility that we're going to see in chapter 12, verse 1. So if you want to turn there, you can. If not, I'll just read it for you. At the very least, you should write it in the margins of this story. Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. Here's what Stephen said when he was on trial before the Sanhedrin. He says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Okay. If you have an older translation, like the New King James, in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, and then it gives the promise. The newer translations translate it, the Lord said to Abram, and have a footnote here. This is because the Hebrew in chapter 12, verse 1, when it says the Lord said, is the Hebrew vayomer, and the Lord said. And that could, based on the context, be either the Lord said or the Lord had said beforehand. It's the same form, and, and context determines that. But Stephen lets us know in chapter 7 that that is the way it should be taken. That the Lord had spoken to Abraham before he went to Haran and before his father Terah was born. So Stephen, the New Testament revelation, confirms what is only possible in the Old Testament. What this means 
is that God made the wonderful promises that we're going to read in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He made those promises to Abram while he was in Ur of the Chaldeans, which was probably why they left in the first place, because they left for Canaan. But then you see they're not in Canaan, they're in Haran. And when you see them there, they're not experiencing the promises of God. They have no land of their own. They're not especially blessed. We don't read about that until later. When Abraham gets to the promised land, he's going to have so much stuff, he's not going to know what to do with it all. And his nephew and him are going to start fighting about it. And Sarai is unable to have children. So Abram left his homeland, went to Haran, and he's not seeing the promises of God. Now, maybe he had started to wonder, well, wait a minute, God, you told me to leave and that if I left, you were going to give me all these blessings and promises. So what's the deal? Well, I think you know. The reason that Abram was not experiencing the fulfillment of God's promises in his life was that he had not been fully obedient to the word of God. We're going to see it. God told him, leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your father's house to the land that I will show you. And it seems from chapter 11 in verse 31, they knew what that land was, the land of Canaan. They knew the destination, but they didn't go. He didn't leave his father. He took him with him. He didn't leave his nephew. He took him with him. Seems like rather than Abram leaving and going out on his own, they took the whole caravan with them. They all left. They all went together. They hopped in the Winnebago and they drove up and stopped at Haran. And he didn't leave Haran until his father's death. Probably this was a cultural thing. I'm your father. You need to stay and take care of me. I'm the head of the household. I'm the patriarch. You're going to listen to me. Depending on how you vocalize the name Terah or Terach, his name could mean delay, which is a little appropriate for this story, isn't it? People have asked, why would God choose an old man to be the father of many nations? The short version is he didn't choose an old man. But by the time Abram got around to doing what God told him to do, he was an old man. Now, for Abram to be sitting in Haran and start to evaluate the character and the promises of God based on his present circumstances would have been totally wrong and inappropriate because he had not done what God had asked. For him to start saying, well, okay, I, I did what God said. He hadn't, but let's say he was assuming that. And I'm looking around. Well, I, I don't have any children, so Lot must be my heir. That must be what God had meant, that Lot will receive all of my goods. And I, I'm, not, I'm not blessed like he said I was going to be blessed, but I mean, maybe I should just be more content with what I have. This is what God meant when he said that. And, you know, I don't really have land of my own like, like I, I thought God meant, but, you know, I've got a house and I've, I've got some things, so I should just be content with that. And you can really spiritualize that, can't you? I shouldn't want more. I should be happy with God, what God has given to me. Yes, you should be happy with what God's given to you, but you, know, you don't do your parents any favors by not opening all the presents they've put for you under the Christmas tree. You just open the one and say, thank you so much. I never could have imagined this. Yeah, there's more under there. No, no this is, thank you. 
I just I should be content with this. It's like, what are you doing, kid? I got you some more. Get over there. I paid for them presents. You're going to open those presents. So often, we look at our lives and we see that what we're experiencing does not match up with what the Bible said. Forget about weird cultural things. What the Bible says. And unfortunately, rather than looking to ourselves and saying, have I failed to do something, we start to question God or tinker with his word and say, well, it can't be me. So how do we do this? There's three ways that I I came up with here. These are ways that we reevaluate what God said in order to fit our situations. Number one is we spiritualize them. God gives us a promise and we spiritualize it. All these promises were only meant to be spiritual anyway. I know God said that he would give me peace that passes all understanding. And you know what? Someday we're going to be in heaven and and I will have peace there. And you know, I I, I guess things are more peaceful now than they used to be. And I, I really, by peace, it means I should learn to be okay with how stressed out I am. Or if the Lord promises us answers to prayer, we say, well, you know what? By praying about it, I'm now okay with not having the answer to my prayer. That's what God meant, spiritualizing. Number two is we redefine things. This might be what Abraham was doing, and he's going to do it again later. The Lord said, I make you the father of many nations. Okay, well, we can't have children, so he must have meant something else. By father, he must mean great uncle to Lot. Or later on, he's going to have a very unfortunate episode with a woman named Hagar, Yeah, father of many nations, but that doesn't mean that Sarai has to be the mother of many nations. And we say, well, what I'm experiencing now is what God always intended. We say that the victory over sin that I'm having now, this is just as far as God wanted me to go. This is victory. This is revival. This is blessing. This is peace. And we're using our experiences and tacking that onto the word of God and saying that's what it meant. And number three, we could even start to blame God. This is when we start to say, God's word is wrong. We blame him. Abraham might say, God told me to leave my country, and I did, and I'm not seeing this. God is a liar. Or God's character is insufficient. We can even do this without realizing it. When you just quietly stop believing in the promises of God. You say, I I don't believe that God answers prayer. I'm not going to say it out loud, but I don't believe it. Or you might say something like, I I don't believe that God is going to give me peace in this life. Because I've lived for a long time, and I, I don't have any peace. And what's implicit in that is that God is a liar. God has failed. God is either incapable or unwilling to give you what he's promised. The Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. And if you are thinking that what you're experiencing is all that God has to give you, it can make your heart sick. So those three things, we spiritualize the promises, we redefine the promises, or we blame God. But let's let's get one thing straight. The character of God is never in doubt. Amen? God doesn't change and God cannot lie and his word never fails. We know that's true. So if my life doesn't match God's promises, maybe the problem is not with God. Maybe the problem is with me. Now, as hard as it may be to hear, and and as a pastor and as someone who loves you dearly, it wrenches my heart to say this, but it must be said. Not in every case, but many times. Your failure to see the fulfillment of God's promises in your life can be laid at the feet of your failure to obey his word. Well, I tried Christianity. It didn't work for me. 
Did you, though? I've told you about my friend who said he tried every religion. And he told me about his experiences with Christianity. I'm like, I don't know what you were doing, but nothing in there has anything to do with Jesus. So don't say, I can scratch that one off the list. I tried it. No, you didn't. Well, let's apply that to our own lives. We're not talking about salvation matters now. We're talking about the blessings and promises of God. We even start to say things like, well, I, I'm just not into blessings because it's not, about, it's not about blessings. It's not about material things. It's about suffering. Listen, Christians need to know how to suffer, but do you think that God hates you? I've saved you, but don't think I'm going to let you off that easy. You know, we can go from one extreme of saying God will give you a Cadillac if you pray for it often enough to saying God doesn't want to give you anything good because you don't deserve it. Well, I don't deserve anything, so what are, what are we talking about here? Our failure to see the fulfillment of God's promises often can be laid at our own feet. And that, in some cases, is just impossible for us to accept, so we start looking for other explanations. The children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Do you think that was always God's plan for them? It wasn't. We know it wasn't. He said, I'm going to lead you out of Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. He sent 10 plagues. He parted the Red Sea. He gave them water at the rock. He spared them with the golden calf. He gave them his law, brought them to the promised land, and they said, we're not going in. And God said, fine, then you can wander in the wilderness for 40 years. I'll do it with your kids. And to then say, well, this is what God always wanted for us. No, absolutely not. It was their failure. Saul lost his kingdom to David. Now, was that always God's plan? No, because God had told Saul what to do, and Saul had a great run, but there came a point where Saul got a little big for his britches and thought he was the one winning all these battles. And he starts sacrificing on an altar to the Lord instead of waiting for Samuel. And then God tells him, wipe out the Amalekites, and he spares the best of the cattle and the spoil for himself and leaves the king alive. And then God says, Saul, I'm tearing the kingdom away from you, and I'm giving it to somebody who's a man after my own heart. Wasn't God's fault that Saul lost the kingdom? Saul rebelled. You might say, well, wait a minute. God is sovereign. God has all control. Yes, he is. But in his sovereignty, God said, here's what you need to do. And when you don't do that, when you don't do what your sovereign has told you to do, you know what that's called? Rebellion. If you are living in rebellion against your sovereign, don't expect him to come down and start handing out goodies. Well, why doesn't the king ever come and throw us festivals anymore? Well, you rebelled against his authority and killed his representatives and said, we don't want you anymore. You haven't paid your taxes in 50 years. Failure to submit to God's sovereignty is called rebellion. In Luke chapter 9, verses 59 through 60, Jesus said to somebody, follow me. We love those stories where Jesus told Peter and James and John and Andrew and Levi, said, come, follow me. And they left their nets and they left their tax booth and they came after Jesus and sold everything they had to come after him. But there were some folks that Jesus said, follow me too. And it went more like this. Jesus said, follow me. The man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, was his dad out there rotting on the slab and we needed to get him in the earth and I'll be back by supper time? No, dad wasn't dead yet. Let me go take care of my elderly parents and then when that responsibility is over, I'll come follow you. That's what that means. But Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus, is that focusing on the family? (laughs) No shade to those people. But Jesus is showing there's something more important than all that. Same thing for Abram. I will obey you, Lord, but let me bury my father. It's not my fault if he's going to live past 200. There are a few things more difficult than accepting responsibility for your own mess. But if you can't do that, you're going to have some serious trouble. Well, God obviously is happy with me. So why am I not being blessed? Why am I not experiencing his promises? Theology books are written to explain why God's promises don't actually mean what they obviously say. But we've got to be able to look ourselves in the mirror and see, am I doing what God's told me to do, or am I sitting here in Haran when Canaan is 400 miles away? The promises of God were waiting for Abram. They were there, ready for him, but he wouldn't get up and go. And if you won't get up and go, you're not going to be seeing the fulfillment of those promises. So don't sit there and start blaming God. Or worse, resenting people who are experiencing the promises of God and then want to come and tell you how to get there. Don't tell me. I've I've been a Christian for 50 years. You're going to come and tell me about how to follow Jesus? I've been following Jesus my whole life. Yeah, God answers prayer, but you don't expect him to actually answer prayers, do you? You don't expect him to actually give you all those promises, do you? What are you, some kind of selfish person? No, it's like I'm a man that found a treasure buried in a field, and I can't wait to tell everybody else where it's buried. Because look what Abraham was missing out on for all these years. Let's read the first three verses of chapter 12. This is a section worth highlighting and circling and starring. This is a turning point in the Bible. Now the Lord said or had said to Abram, Go! Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. The only other person, by the way, in the Bible who was ever told I'll make your name great was David. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the promise. This was what was so special that Abram thought it was worth leaving house and home for. And as I said, these are some of the most significant words in all of Scripture. This is God choosing the man through whom he would bring about the other man who would bring about his salvation. We saw this back in chapter 3, verse 15, when the Lord told Adam and Eve after they had sinned, I will send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. We call that the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. Well, now we're seeing God has identified the family where that deliverer, that promised one, that Messiah, will come from. We saw the promise pass from Adam down to Seth and to Noah and to Shem and now passed on to Abram. And we will dive in more detail into the promise and the covenant that God will make with Abram because we're going to see this repeated several times in in the book of Genesis, but let me just state it right now without spending a lot of time to defend it. The New Testament makes clear that the promise that God made to Abram is still in effect. God doesn't make promises and then break them later on. Read Galatians 3 if you want to look into that. So you should pay close attention to this. If you're taking notes, there are three strands to this promise here that we're going to look at. Three things that God promised Abram. Number one, 
He promised him land, the promised land, right? That's why we call it that. This is the land of Canaan. And we will see the boundaries of that land specified as time goes on. This is what the children of Israel would refer to as the kingdom, (laughs) that someday the Lord is going to give them the promised land. There are still wars being fought over that land today. Israel's claim to that spot is God said to our father Abraham, this will be our land. And there are also a lot of Arabs who say, no, God promised our father Abraham that we would have this land, the descendants of Ishmael. We'll talk about him later. The land is rather significant. Number two, God promised Abraham offspring, many descendants. He's going to say later on, number the stars. That's what your descendants are going to be. And that is true today. The descendants of Abraham, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, right? But most importantly, as Paul draws out in Galatians 3.16, we'll get into this in more detail in coming weeks, this is the seed, the singular seed of Abraham, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. That through your offspring, through your seed, through Jesus, will all the nations of the world be blessed. And we are partaking in that blessing right now. And third, the Lord promised him blessing. God promised to bless Abram. Not some spiritual, hyper-spiritual, weird, oh, you're always going to be my favorite, you know. He said, I will bless you. And we're going to see when he gets into this land, he's going to be blessed. And the children of Israel will continue to be blessed. And even the Jews around the world today, over and over again, the Gentile nations to which they're scattered come to a point where they say, what is it with these Jews? Why do they, why do, they do so well? Because God has blessed them. They're God's chosen people. This is when God started choosing his people. We saw a few weeks ago the Tower of Babel, the Table of Nations, nations all over the world, and God says, this is my nation, right here. And again, that blessing would be especially demonstrated through Jesus Christ. Over and over again, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 22, the Lord is going to reaffirm the promise. He's going to establish a formal covenant with Abram, and all of that ultimately will be fulfilled in Christ Jesus. All of these promises were sure promises because they were made upon the character of God who cannot lie. If God said it, then you can trust it. Somebody who makes a promise to you is only as good as the person actually making the promise. Two different people can come up to you and both of them will say, I promise you. Now, if one of them is a scoundrel and a liar and has proven themselves to be untrustworthy, they say, I promise. And you go, yeah, 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 I've heard that before. But then you got somebody else that comes up to you and says, I promise. And you, you hear them, and you maybe even said this to somebody, you don't need to promise me, I trust you. Well, how about the God of creation coming and making a promise? These are sure promises. But in order to receive these promises, Abram needed to do the first word that God had told him, which was, Go! I've got a promise waiting for you in Canaan, so get up and go. Now Abram got up, and he went, but he stopped halfway. Well, why aren't the promises here? Because that's not where God told you the promises were. X marks the spot in Canaan, and you're not in Canaan. Now, in Christ Jesus, you and I have been brought into God's grace. 
Your entire life is now characterized not by judgment from God, but grace from God. I love using the illustration of Esther when she walked into the, the king's court and how dangerous that was to approach the king. And she said, if he doesn't extend his scepter to me, I won't be able to come in and they'll cut my head off. But she walked in and what did the king do? He extended the scepter. He showed grace. He showed favor. That's what it is to be a Christian. You're walking into a dangerous place. This is God we're talking about. So what makes you think you can go in and ask favors of God? Because he's extended his favor to me. Cost the Lord the life of his only son to win that grace for you. And that means to be living a life under the grace of God, there's a whole New Testament and portions of the Old Testament too that talk about the amazing blessings and promises that are waiting for you as a Christian. 2 Corinthians 1.20 All the promises of God find their yes in Him. Who is Him? Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. How many of the promises of God? All the promises of God find their yes in who? In Christ. And if you are in Christ, how many of the promises of God are available to you? All of them. So I'm going to do something that you could do a whole conference on this, but let's examine some of the promises that God has made to us as New Testament believers. We'll go through these quickly, and I know you could add to these if you wanted to. We saw what promises God made to Abraham. What promises has God made to you in Christ Jesus? Number one, God has promised you wisdom. God has promised to give you insight on how to make sound decisions. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If anyone asks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. What does without reproach mean? Someone giving you something with reproach means you show up and they say, Oh, it's you again. Hey, what happened to the wisdom I gave you last time? Where is it? He says he gives generously without reproach. Wisdom. That's a promise from God that he will give you wisdom to make sound decisions in life. That's a great promise. Number two, he promises you understanding. Understanding specifically of his word, of the Bible. You can understand the Bible because God has promised to help you understand the Bible. He not only gave us his word, but he gave us the indwelling Holy Spirit who inspired the word. John 16, 13 says the Lord will send us the Holy Spirit who will guide us into all truth so that you can understand it. You know, if you take a literature class of a dead man who wrote a book, you can sit there and argue all day about what he meant, can't you? And people will disagree about what he meant. And does this symbolize anything? Or are you like me, rolling your eyes in the back of the class, saying that doesn't mean anything? But when you've got the author with you, inside of you, helping you understand it, then that's a promise of understanding. Number three, knowledge. I'm not talking about knowledge like in college. Knowledge of God himself. God wants you to know him like a good father. He wants us to be, as Colossians 1 verse 10 says, increasing in the knowledge of God. You have the promise of God that you can know him. You're not dependent upon a pastor or a pope 
or a holy man or a monk or a scribe or whoever to know God. You can know God. That's why it says in the Bible, come, let us press on to know the Lord. Number four, the Lord has promised us power. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, not just power to go out and do a bunch of tricks, power to be a witness, power to edify the body of Christ, even miraculous power, the gifts of the Spirit that the Bible talks about. When the Lord is with you and you're on His mission, He is going to support you with His power for that mission. Number five, answers, answers to prayer. John 14, 14, Jesus said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And this promise is repeated over and over and over again. This is the blessing of those who are in Christ. Because how many times does Jesus receive what he asks of the Father? Every time. And you are in Christ Jesus. Number six, peace. And you could wrap hope and joy up in there too. Peace from God. Philippians 4 verse 7 says that the peace of God will guard your hearts. The Lord has delivered you from inner turmoil to a life of joy and peace and hope and love. We talk about the mental health crisis in America. The solution is Jesus because he has promised inner peace. You know, Buddhist monks want to sit there and mumble about peace in their life. And if I say peace enough times, maybe I'll finally have peace. There's a scene in a movie, and you're going to laugh at me, but there's a kid's movie called Kung Fu Panda where he's over, he's a panda living in China, and he's learning to be a ninja, and it's funny. But there's the, the old kung fu master is this really crotchety, angry little monkey. And there's a scene where he's sitting down in the temple, and he's going, inner peace, inner peace. And he keeps on looking out the window because there's somebody making noise outside the window, and he keeps on trying to, and finally he goes, would you keep it down? And he goes, inner peace. Like, if you're trying to get peace that way, you're never going to get it. But if the Lord gives you his peace, that passes all understanding. Number seven, freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from sin. Victory over sin. Romans 6.14 says that sin will have no dominion over you. Now, you're still in a corrupt, sinful body. That does not mean that every now and then the, the little guerrilla units of sin are going to run in and make a quick raid on some part of your life. But they're not in control Sin has no dominion over you. The Christian life is one of victory. So there's seven promises, and they're great, and we love them. But we start to look at individual ones and say, ah, I don't know about that, though. Here's my favorite one that you hear. Don't push it too far. Don't push it too far. If I'm pushing it far, then so is Jesus and Paul and Peter and James. Why can we believe all those promises? Because they are bound up in the ultimate promise of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Christ. There's not a one of you in here that's going to doubt that promise. Somebody comes up here and says, we shouldn't push that whole forgiveness of sins and eternal life thing so far. You've you got torches and pitchforks and out he goes. He's, he's not staying here. Say, no way. We don't doubt that. Well, what you need to learn is the faith you have in that promise is tied to the promises here. These are true because that is true. You have wisdom and peace and knowledge and power because Jesus has died on the cross and forgiven your sins. If that's true, then this is true. We hate it when people spiritualize salvation. 
or spiritualize the resurrection. He's alive in your heart. Well, who cares? Is he alive really or not? We know that he is. And yet we have no problem with doing that with answers to prayer. Well, I mean, he'll just make you okay with the life that you're living. That's not what he said, though. Like, that sounds great, but it's not what he said. Or we can do that with inner peace. Well, I mean, there's some things you'll get over and some things that will never be gotten over until you get to heaven. That's not what he said. Freedom over sin. I mean, you're always going to have one thing that you're struggling with. That's not what the Bible says. Is Christ a liar? Of course not. The reason we do not see these things is because we have not done what God has asked. Abram was in no position to reevaluate the promises of God until he had actually done what God had said. I don't think God meant it when he promised me that. How dare you say that, Abram? You didn't do what he told you to do. I don't think God gives wisdom when we ask. Well, did you ask or did you just run half-cocked and do your own thing? And do not presume to say, well, God can do whatever he wants. It has nothing to do with me. Look, obviously God can do whatever he wants. But God has shown you what he wants. It's in his word. He's told us what to, Abram could say. Well, God can give me children here just as well as he can give them in the promised land. Okay, well, that sounds like you're worshiping the sovereignty of God. But in reality, you're denying the sovereignty of God. Because you're saying God is sovereign enough to do a miracle wherever. But he's not sovereign enough to tell me what to do. God has revealed his designs for his people. And the Lord wants the best for you. Why is that so hard for us to accept sometimes? Well, because there are people that say that you can wish things into existence. Well, I'm not saying that, and neither are you. So what are we worried about? John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So according to those promises that we just went over, where is their lack in your life? I'm not talking about salvation now. Get that out of your head. We're talking about living the promised life. That's your inheritance if you are in Christ Jesus. It's yours because it's Christ's and you belong to Christ. Don't blame God. Well, God said he would and then he didn't. That does not sound like the God I know. And don't dismiss his promises. Well, I don't need that anyway. If it's in his word, God thinks you do. The streets of heaven don't need to be made of gold either, but that's what God decided. Take a hard look at your life. See, are, have you really left Ur of the Chaldeans? Are you sitting in Haran? Are you stopped halfway? Or have you gone to the promised land? Verses 4 through 9. Let's see what happens when he actually went to the promised land. Because this is Abraham. He did do it. Verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak, or the terebinth, depending on the language, of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. 
So finally, finally, 75-year-old Abram makes the journey. Still brings his nephew, and that's going to cause problems later. It's interesting. Every time Abram finally takes one step further in obedience to that first call, he gets a little more of that promise from the Lord. But he goes to a place called Shechem, and he comes to the oak tree or the terebinth tree of Moreh. It's a big old tree. That's all that we need to worry about. When he gets there, God appears to him. God hadn't said anything to him since he was in Ur. And he's in there wondering, God, why don't you speak to me again? Why don't you tell me? My dad loves to use this illustration. Because if I tell my son to go mow the lawn, and he comes in after doing it for 15 minutes and say, Hey, Dad, do you still want me to mow the lawn? I don't owe him an answer to that question. I've already told you. We'll talk when it's over. Same thing. God, why aren't you speaking to me? God's like, because I already told you, and you know good and well what I told you to do, so get there. And when he finally does it, God appears to him and reaffirms the promise. Isn't that cool? And Abram becomes a nomad, a Bedouin, sort of like that today, moving between Bethel and Ai, and he builds an altar there. He built an altar back in Shechem, and he ends up moving south to the Negev, the desert. I could preach just this, and maybe I will later on, but Abram built no cities. He pitched tents. The only things that Abram built and the only things that he left behind were altars, were places for people to come and worship. There's a legacy for you. Maybe think about that on your own time, that the only thing I want to leave behind is places for people to come back and say, this is where God met with him, and then they get to worship the Lord too. Hebrews gives a lot of time to Abram in the call of faith. Chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He's not going to build anything for himself. He's going to let God build it for him. It took Abram a while let's not be too hard on him. He became a tremendous example of the life of faith. He could have said, I'm 75 years old. I missed it. He said, I'm 75 years old. I've waited way too long, but I, I've got to go. And he did. He's a tremendous example. He was a sojourner. He was a pilgrim. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 calls us sojourners and pilgrims. This isn't our home. If you want to see the promises of God in your life, you've got to go back to what Christ has commanded you and say, have I done that? Have I entered the promised land or am I wandering around in the wilderness? What did Jesus say? We're going to read Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 36. Familiar verses. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, loses his life. For my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? God's command to Abram was to leave your home, leave your family, leave your false gods, leave everything you've ever known. And guess what? That's the same commandment that you and I have been given. To be a Christian means to take up your cross. What happens to people who carry crosses? They die. Jesus is saying, 
Hang on the cross with me until your old life bleeds out. That's why he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Can a man go back into his mother's womb? No, you've got to die first, then you can be born again leaving the old entirely behind. Jesus died on the cross and then rose to newness of life. And that new life that he gives to you comprises the promises we just discussed. But listen to me. If you do not die to yourself, you will not find the newness of life. Because the old raggedy self is still alive. And you say, well, can't God bless that? Why would he want to bless that? That wouldn't be good for you. We hold on to so much from our old lives. I want to follow Jesus, but I'm going to take this and this and one carry-on bag and a personal item and one check bag. Can I take that with me? And we take it, but it weighs us down. It weighs us down. It keeps us from doing everything Jesus has asked us to do. And sooner or later, you hit a wall because you can't go any further in your walk with Jesus until you shed some of that weight and keep going forward. We're like the children of Israel. We just keep wandering in the wilderness. No, we left Egypt. We're saved. We've gone across the, the waters, been baptized, but you've not entered into the promised land yet. And that was the whole point. Well, I'm still going to get to heaven. Yeah, but you've got a life to live first, don't you? Don't you want to have that abundant life? It's like we're hanging on the cross with Jesus, but we're languishing there. We're not making an end of it. Can't I just torment myself for my whole life? Do I have to die? Every one of you right now could probably get out a piece of paper and make a list of all the things you know that you're supposed to be doing in obedience to God, and you're not. I'm not talking about, well, I don't know. Let me think. Maybe this is a problem. I'm talking about obvious stuff. It's running through your head right now. You know what I'm talking about. It's sitting there orbiting around your brain because the Lord won't let it go. And you say, God, can you talk to me about something else? No, because that's the thing. So why would you expect the blessings of the new life when you keep clinging to the old life? You ever watch that show, Hoarders? When they try to clean out those people's house and they start screaming and freaking out over some old toothbrush that they had back in 1986? No, I need that. And there's always a point where the therapist says, look, if you can't let me take this, I can't help you. They say, well, you're abandoning me? And you're like, oh, come on. Don't feel so sorry for yourself. Well, we do the same thing, don't we? The Lord says, I'm going to take those. No, not that. I need that. I love that. That was my favorite thing. And God's like, yeah, but if I can't fix that, I can't fix anything else. Why are you picking on me, Jesus? He said, well, I've done all the things God has asked me to do. Okay. Do you study his word as your daily bread? I mean, it's almost a cliche. I mean, I guess I could do it more than I am now. Do you study his word as your daily bread, or do you take a little small doses on the go? Or you try to eat a big meal on Sunday and a big meal on Wednesday and hope that will carry you through for seven days? Do you really pray? This is a question I've started asking people. Do you really pray, or do you just say, yes, it would be a great idea for me to pray? How many times when you say, oh, I've been praying for you, do you actually pray for that person? Well, you do say, I've been praying for you, and then you get in the car and say, oh, Lord, please bless, what's her name, so that way I'm not a liar and I can actually say I prayed for him? Do you really pray? Really pray. Jesus said, pray without ceasing. He said, can't you pray with me one hour? And you go, one hour? That's a little excessive, isn't it? And then you wonder why your prayers aren't answered. Is there peace in your life? Or have you so glutted yourself with the world and its view on life that there's no room for peace anymore? 
That whole passage where he says, the peace that passes all understanding, he says, think on these things, whatever is good, whatever is lovely, whatever is peaceful. So it's not just God's going to give you his peace in a vacuum. The Lord says, I want to give you my peace. Here's how you do it. Don't focus on all that junk. Then you go home and you binge 16 hours of Netflix a day and you wonder why there's no peace in your heart. You spend every 10 minutes, every spare minute, you're pulling up the news to see what else is happening, what else is burning around the world, and you wonder why you're so stressed out. God's not giving me his peace. There's no room for peace. Do you have victory over sin, or have you given the temptation in your life a spare bedroom? Now, there's, we, we overcome sin, and that can be a process, but if you're just leaving it there, it's like if somebody were to say, well, I have a problem with idolatry. Okay, let's get that idol out of your house. Now, it really ties the room together. You don't think you'll be tempted to bow down? Well, I'm trying. I believe God can give me the, uh, the ability to overcome. Yeah, he can, but that's foolishness. If that's how you're living your life, why on earth would you expect to see God's promises? And don't you dare live like that and then come to God's word and say, God didn't mean what he said. You have not made an appropriate test of God's word yet. You're still living in Haran. Now, you might be thinking, well, that sounds like a gospel of works. I thought we were saved by grace. No, it's not. Taking up your cross and submitting to God's commandments is not works. It's faith. The other thing is works. Because you're expecting that the way you live shouldn't matter. That's not faith. Because what God said is the way you live does matter, so do these things so I can bless you. And you say, I'm not doing that. I don't trust you enough to do that. Which person has more faith? Was it works when Josiah went and destroyed the high places and tore them down? Was it works when Peter left his nets to follow Jesus? No, it was faith. But don't think that faith just means you sit and do nothing. That's not faith. All the other disciples had faith that they could walk on water, but guess what? They didn't walk on water. The one that got out of the boat is the one that walked on water. Put it another way. If you have not allowed yourself to hit rock bottom from the world's view and put all your hope in Christ, then you've not done what God commanded. If you've still got a chance, if this whole Jesus thing doesn't work out, I've still got a life. I'll tell you, it was a hard thing for me. It was a point in, in my wife's life and mine, and thankfully we did the right thing, but when we came down here and... It was, it was past the point where there was some support left over from home, and it was time for me to go get a job. And I got the job driving the junk truck, and then it began to become clear this is not going to be a one- or two-month thing. This is going to be a long-term thing. And then I realized, if I do this, I am scuttling many of my chances to leave this and go do something else. I'm educated. I have a degree. I've got skills. I worked in an office. I, I could go somewhere else. But now all of a sudden you've got a weird year and a half gap in your resume where you drove a drunk truck for a while. You were making how much? And you used to make that? Okay. And I realized, okay, now it's starting to cost something. That's hard. But you know, it was really cool because we were praying about that and thinking about that. And then we kind of realized, oh, this is what Jesus was talking about. Oh, well, then that's, let's do it then. Let's go for it. Let's just take my life and toss it out the window. It doesn't always mean your physical life. It can mean the life that you could have had if it wasn't for Jesus. Take that, ball it up, and throw it away. And if you've got like your safety exit back door over here, you're missing it. Now, is this the only reason that we can miss out on certain things? No. 
But I think that most of the time, this is the one. The Lord wanted Abram away from other influences so that the only voice he was hearing was his. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. That never works. People that try to go halfway, they never topple over and land on the heaven side, do they? When you can finally say, enough's enough, put away your idols, put away your carnalities, and look only to Christ, your life will transform. And you know what's even better than that? God doesn't wait until you get to the finish line to start blessing you. He waits until you take the first step, and then he starts blessing you. And every step of the way, he gives you more fulfillments of those promises. Because your God is a good father who delights to show mercy to his children. So don't think you've got some big, long road to hoe. Oh, Lord, it's going to take so long for me to finally earn your promises. You're missing it. You turn around, and God's waiting there with balloons and birthday cake and one of those little noisemakers saying, Hey, you did it! Step one, congratulations! But if you're only going to go halfway, don't expect the fullness of Christ. And don't you dare then start blaming God as if you were doing everything perfect. The Lord has told you what is good. Do that, and then you'll receive more. Because 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How many things? All things. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You were called to glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his great and precious promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Wow. That's what God's promised you. But you know what it says in verse 5 there, the first things that Peter says? For this reason, make every effort. have got to stop acting like faith and works are, are opposites, because they're not. The promises of God compel our obedience to his word. The Lord says, Abram, I want to graciously give you these things. Go to Canaan. Yes, sir. He doesn't get to go to Canaan and say, look what I've done. He didn't do anything. He stepped out in faith. And I say again. Submitting to God's will is not a work to be done. It's the opposite of work. It's submission. It's obedience. It's to cease from striving. So where do you need to rip sin up at the roots? Look at your life. Where are you allowing sin to influence you? Where, where is it in your life that the world and the devil have a, have a line into your brain where they're telling you, something that you know isn't good. If you've got like nine or ten shows and bands and online things that you do, and all of them you have to say, I mean, it's not great, but, you know, as long as I, I don't do it too much, then I'll be okay. If that's all you've got, you're overwhelming your own defenses. Get better at that. Where are you giving half effort and expecting the fullness of the reward? Jeremiah 4 verse 3 says, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Stop sowing seeds among thorns. Break up the ground that's fallow. Don't ever count the cost as too high and then stop. I can tell you right now what the cost is. The journey of faith will take everything from you. The word of God is your measuring stick. If your life doesn't measure up to what God has promised, don't blame God. Paul says in one of his epistles, examine yourself. You might be living in Haran. You might be back in Ur of the Chaldeans. But the Lord has a promised land waiting for you if you will take up your cross and follow him. 
And that life that he's promised is too good to only give half effort.